It's great to uh, welcome you uh, this morning to Alliance Bible Fellowship, uh, especially on this particular morning. I know this is Labor Day, and uh, so I want you to turn to the next, next to the person uh, sitting next to you and, and, and say, happy birthday. Go ahead and do that. Happy, happy birthday. Yeah. Because it was on late. Yeah, that, that's right. And some of you are going to be really glad to hear this. You're only 40. You see, it was, it was, some of you aren't so glad, but it was, it was on Labor Day weekend 40 years ago today that the Alliance Bible Fellowship was planted as a new church in Boone. And, uh, and so I'm thankful. And we actually still do have some charter members here. And uh, so I want to say happy birthday uh, to you. While the quote may have originated with Christopher Bullock in 1716, it was actually Benjamin Franklin who made it famous in a letter to a friend in 1789 when he wrote these words. Our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency, (laughs) but in this world nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. We've all heard that, right? Nothing in life is certain except death, and taxes. And so, to to prepare for certain taxation, we have the tax code, scintillating scintillating late-night reading, and to to help us understand the tax code and minimize, minimize our tax liability, we have tax experts like CPAs and tax attorneys and, well, H and R Block. Further, while it is said we we must pay taxes. The truth is, if you were honest, you can't cheat on your taxes. We even joke about it. Perhaps you heard of the guy who anonymously sent $1,000 to the IRS with the following note. I've cheated on my tax returns and I can't sleep, so I sent the enclosed cash. If I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. Of course, we remember Jesus was once asked about paying taxes. He asked for a coin and, and held it up and said, whose inscription is this? To which the people responded, Caesar's. Jesus then famously replied, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In other words, pay your taxes. Don't cheat. So again, we generally have to pay taxes and there are people to help us understand that certainty and there are books to help us prepare for that certainty. <laughs> Interestingly, to quote Franklin, we also have to die. Oh, and there is no cheating death. We may try to put it off through diet and exercise, medicine, and clean living, and as a result, the average uh, lifespan in our country has increased remarkably um, through the years, except, except for the last two years. Did you know that? The last two years, our average lifespan has actually decreased in the U.S. Why? According to the experts, there are two reasons, namely, substance abuse and despair. Despair. Whatever that means. But death is inevitable. As a nation, through all the political rhetoric, we buried John McCain yesterday and political rhetoric, Aretha Franklin the day before, and this afternoon we will bury Robbie Colley 
here in this, we will have his funeral in this room, founder of Freedom Farm Ministries. None of us expected that a week ago. He wasn't sick. He's out on his beloved bulldozer, turned over and killed him. Because death is inevitable, inescapable. And so we have people to help us understand that certainty, perhaps pastors or more mature Christians or evangelists who who remind people, you will die. It is inevitable. We also have a book, by the way, that helps uh, prepare us for that certainty. It's called The Bible. Yes, as Michael reminded us last week, it is a 2,000-year-old book, but it's not just any book. We as followers of Christ understand it to be God's very Word, and therefore perfect with timeless truths to include, to prepare us for certain inescapable death. I suspect that most of you, from the time you woke up this morning till now, have not thought about death. And yet I'm going to suggest that perhaps you should. We've been studying the book of Hebrews, one of those books in the Bible. You may know the Bible is composed of 66 books written by some 40 different authors over a period of some 1,500 years, and quite amazingly, really, uh, supernaturally, when brought together into one book called the Bible, there was glorious, beautiful, and I choose this word intentionally, inerrant truth. Book is actually divided uh, between the 39 books of the Old Testament, which we learned last week we could call the Old Covenant, and the 27 books of the New Testament or the New Covenant. In our study of Hebrews, the author wrote to, to Jewish believers to encourage them in their faith and to remind them, listen, this is very important, to remind them that there is only hope found in the New Covenant. In Jesus and His gospel, I say hope, that word intentionally, because hope is forward-looking. What's coming? In our text today, the author tells us there are actually three inevitable things coming, inescapable things, and one is indeed death. The other two? Let's read the text, Hebrews 9, verses 23 to the end of the chapter, say this, therefore, because without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness, therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, that is the blood of bulls and goats, but but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true, true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he, that is Christ, would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world since, well, we've had sinners since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, there's one, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, 
will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Did you see them? Yes, verse 27, it is appointed to every person to die once. And after that comes the second certain inescapable judgment. Did you hear what I said? Judgment is inescapable and it is coming. And this book has been written to prepare you not so much for death but for the judgment to follow. The third thing that is also certain, verse 28, the return, the second coming of Jesus Christ. I know it's been 2,000 years, and maybe, just maybe, you're beginning to wonder. You're beginning to wonder, is he really coming back? Is all of this worth it? I would say to you, not only is he coming back, he is coming the second time not to die, not to put away sin. He did that the first time. He is coming back for those who eagerly await his return. And so, I asked you, did, how, I wonder how many of you have thought of death since you woke up this morning. How many of you have thought of the return of Christ today or this week? When, when is, in fact, the last time? Three things are absolutely certain, but have we been lulled to sleep? The author is in the heart of his letter. He's been writing to encourage persecuted Jewish believers who were wondering themselves, is this true? Is all of this worth it? After all, the persecution is increasing. Martyrdom seems to be right around the corner. Maybe we should just leave Jesus and Christianity and return to Moses and Judaism. So the author writes to both warn and encourage them. His warning is basically this, you can't leave. Why? Because there's no salvation in Judaism. It's obsolete. There is no sacrifice for sin there. Meaning if you leave Jesus, there is no hope. That's future. There is no hope for you. His encouragement has been this, after all, Jesus is better. Why, why would you leave? He's better in every way. And the new covenant he brought is better than the old covenant. The, the truth is, everything in the old covenant was temporary and typological. Remember those words from last week? Temporary and typological, pointing to Jesus and the new covenant to come, which has come. So, for example, last week we saw both the old covenant and the new covenant required a death to be enacted. Because without the shedding of blood, without a death, there could be no forgiveness. Under the old covenant, it was the blood of bulls and goats that, that brought temporary salvation and purification. And under the new covenant, it was, listen, it was the very death of God's own son, Jesus Christ. A better sacrifice? You bet. Better blood that brought eternal salvation with an eternal inheritance. And that brings us to the text that we just read a moment ago. Here's the outline. See if these look familiar. A better sanctuary, a better sacrifice, and a better hope. I mean, we, we've seen these truths already. And remember, I've told you that the author plunges the depths of every truth to capture every possible nuance. So, 
We'll move quickly through these first two points, not because they are unimportant, quite the contrary, but, be, but because they have largely already been covered. We'll spend more time in the last point as we look at the certainty of death, judgment, and the coming of Christ. Now, remember the last statement of verse 22 was, without shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness. We spent some time talking about that. Therefore, verses 23 and 24, we, re we read under the old covenant, the sacrifices of bulls and, and goats were needed, interesting, to cleanse the tabernacle. We saw that last week. Mo Moses took the blood of, of those sacrifices and sprinkled or actually threw the blood uh, on the tabernacle and the vessels in the tabernacle. So also, also the author now says the blood of, of a better sacrifice was needed to cleanse the heavenly things, namely the heavenly tabernacle. tabernacle. In fact, he reminds us the earthly tabernacle was a copy of the true tabernacle. This is interesting. In heaven. Hmm, that's interesting. You see, every time he mentions the word heaven, he does several times, it's in the plural, the heavens. But this time, for some reason, he uses it in the singular, in heaven. I wonder why. Several thoughts about that. First, we note again the earthly tabernacle was a type of the heavenly tabernacle. In fact, God told Moses uh, to, to be sure to build the tabernacle according to the plan that I showed you uh, up on the mountain when I gave you the old covenant, when I gave you the law. D does that mean that we are supposed to see a heavenly tent? That's what the word tabernacle means, a heavenly tent. Not exactly. What, 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 what it, but it does mean two, at least two things. First, I would suggest that every element of the earthly tabernacle in some way represents a heavenly truth. For example, the lampstand likely reminds us that Jesus is the light of the world. The, 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 the table of showbread likely reminds us that Jesus is the bread of life. But, but, but the second way the earthly tabernacle represents the heavenly one is that it symbolized the very presence of God. Y y yes, God is omnipresent. But he was, remember, we've seen it, he was present in a very special way above the Ark of the Covenant, between the cherubim, in the most holy place, in the tabernacle. But he is also especially present in the singular heaven. There is a place, spatially, especially. Now, another thing we should note about these verses is that he says, while the earthly tabernacle was cleansed by animal blood. The heavenly tabernacle was cleansed by better sacrifices. He just does that for symmetry. Actually, one sacrifice, the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus. 4 verse 24, Jesus did not present his sacrifice at the earthly tabernacle in the most holy place. No, no, he didn't do that. But these were just a mere copy of the true heavenly tabernacle. So Jesus appeared there and is still there at his Father's right hand, eternally interceding for us by his sacrifice. That means he's still bleeding today. That's not it. But by his finished work at the Father's right hand, he is a constant reminder of our salvation. This leads to the third thing we should note, and I just need to let you know it's a bit challenging. Just as the earthly tabernacle needed cleansing, the implication in these verses is that the heavenly tabernacle, where God dwells, that's what I said earlier, it's singular, where God dwells needed cleansing. What? 
Does that mean that heaven in some way was impure? This has troubled exegetes for centuries. In what way was heaven, the very dwelling place of God, impure and needing cleansing? I'll let you think about that a moment. There are three basic interpretations. Let me give them to you quickly. First, some suggest when Satan and his angels rebelled in heaven, consequently thrown out of heaven, there was therefore sin in heaven that needed cleansing. Further, Paul talks about the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms or heavenly places. That's in Ephesians chapter 6. So it's possible, some suggest, that, that heaven was defiled and needed cleansing. But listen, the sacrifice of Jesus was a sacrifice of atonement for forgiveness. And of course, we understand the Scripture is clear that there is no sacrifice of atonement for Satan and his fallen angels. No hope for them. Second, some suggest the offering of a sacrifice was not really a purification necessarily, but an inauguration of the new covenant. As Moses sprinkled blood on the book of the law, on the people, on the tabernacle, on the vessels, at the inauguration of the old covenant, Exodus 24, so also Jesus offered his sacrifice in the heavenly tabernacle at the inauguration of the new covenant. Kind of makes sense. Kind of like that one. Possible. Third interpretation is rather creative. It suggests that what actually needed to be cleansed was the consciences of the people. And we remember he's been talking about that over the last couple of chapters. God's people needed cleansing, salvation, purification, and as a result, God would then dwell with them, in fact, in them, by his Holy Spirit. We become the temple of God. I think that's possible, but, but, but the author actually said heavenly things needed to be cleansed. And it, As good looking as you are, you are not too heavenly right now. What it, which interpretation is correct? I have no idea. In, in, in some way, the sacrifice of Christ offered in heaven, purified a once defiled heaven, inaugurated a new covenant, purified the consciences of people to make them fit for heaven? I don't really know. I do know that by his sacrifice, Jesus appeared in heaven in the presence of God. And don't miss the last two words of verse 24, in the presence of God, in heaven, for us. Hallelujah. Th th this is why he took on flesh and blood and came to earth to begin with. This is what the sacrifice was all about. It was for us, his people. In what way? Verse 26 tells us to put away our sin. I remind you, what I said last week, sin matters. We can try to deny it. We can try to dismiss it as unimportant. Everybody does it, but it matters. Jesus did something about it for us. And we remember there is a sense in which Jesus' sacrifice, again, is eternal. And his sacrifice intercedes or pleads for us eternally in the very presence of God, seated at his right hand. This glorious truth. He did this for us. It leads quickly to the second point, the better sacrifice, verses 25 and 26. I mean, this is the point the author's already made. Y yes, the... 
the sacrifice of the new covenant, namely Jesus, is better than the sacrifice of the old covenant, namely the blood of animals. Yes, it's better because it was offered in, in the heavenly tabernacle as opposed to the earthly tabernacle, uh, which, by the way, was simply a tithe. But, but, but then he, he says again what he has said over and over. This is obviously very important to the author. It's better because by offering himself, his sacrifice only needed to be offered once. Okay, okay, we get, no, 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 he says it again. This is, this is incredibly important to him. Verse 25, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with the blood that is not his own. Every day we know that on the day of atonement, the high priest would take not his own blood, but the blood of unblemished animals. You see, he couldn't take his own blood because his blood, like your blood, was blemished. You can offer yourself on a cross all you want. Problem. You are blemished. He himself, the high priest, was a sinner and needed to offer the blood of a bull for for his sins and the sins of his family. Jesus. He offered his own perfect life blood. And if if it wasn't his own perfect blood, verse 26, he would have needed to suffer often, over and over, since the foundation of the world, since Adam and Eve blew it from the very beginning. But none of that is necessary, because now, once at the consummation of the ages, your, your translation may have it at the end of the ages, Paul calls it at just the right time, the fullness of time, the time to end all time, the time to end all ages. He was manifested once by the sacrifice of himself. And listen to me, and that was eternally good enough. Hallelujah. And by doing so, he put away sins. He put away, it's a strong word, speaks of the total annulment, the cancellation of sin, the debt that was, that was against us. It's gone. Sin is not just rolled forward to be put on the next year's sacrifice and the next year's sacrifice and the next year's sacrifice. Nor was this sacrifice of that particular year for the sins of that year, but we've got a problem. We're going to commit sins next year, so we've got to do another sacrifice next year. No, his sacrifice was once for all sin for all time. Brings us to our last point. It's where I want to focus for the next few minutes. Anyway. Going back to our introduction... What, listen, what is in fact inevitable, inescapable? The author lists three inevitable coming facts. First, verse 27, inasmuch as it is appointed for men, for women, to die once. Stop right there. Now, his point is, as the perfect God-man, Jesus needed to, only needed to die once since men only die once. That's, that's what the beginning of verse 28 says. So Christ also, having been offered once, as the God-man, he died once. That's the point. But the author here makes a well-known, well-accepted truth, one that, is, that it, we all know by history and, frankly, we all know by experience. Every man... Every woman has an appointment with death. Let me make this very personal for you. You have an appointment with death. Again, we can try to 
delay it, to, to, to live more healthy, to live longer, eat right, exercise, regular checkups, take the proper medications. But we cannot cheat it. In the end, die you will. Death is coming. That's why I'm wearing a black suit. Not for my sermon, but for a funeral that will be here in about an hour and a half. Even cryogenics. What is that? Being frozen when you die. People spend big bucks on that. To later be brought back to life when medical technology permits, will not work. Save your money, it'll never work because it is appointed to man, women, to die once. The soul departs. So what if they can bring that blob of flesh back to life? Everyone dies once. To be clear, you have an appointment with death. This is the thing about funerals. Friday, yesterday, today, they remind us, even though we don't want to think about it, they remind us that death is inevitable for everyone. It is inescapably certain. Don't want to talk about it. Again, we don't want to think about it unless we're forced to, facing it in someone else, someone we love, or in us. Death is coming. Lisa, the second inescapable certainty. After death comes not another life, i.e. reincarnation. Nope. Not oblivion. That is non-existence, ceasing to exist, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Nope. The author tells us after death comes immediate and certain judgment. Now, there's much I could say about this. I'll attempt to keep my comments brief. Paul, for example, talks about the judgment seat of Christ. Just so you know that we all must face the judgment seat of Christ. He says that's for Christians. I'll talk about that more in a minute, not to worry. The book of Revelation talks about coming judgments like the great white throne judgment. In fact, I tell people all the time, if you die, the next thing you see is a big great white throne, you are in trouble. Most of that, though, seems distant, right? Seems future, especially when you're younger. Again, I suggest that probably most of you have not thought about death this morning. Judgment? Obviously, after death, there's some kind of judgment to determine where you go. For, for example, consider, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today, not today you will be with me in paradise. Luke chapter 16, the story of the rich man and, and Lazarus. The, the rich man, unrighteous, died in torment. The Lazarus, right poor, righteous man in paradise. Suffice it to say, immediately following death, there is some kind of judgment determined those, I'm going to say this very clearly, those who have been saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. And they and they alone go to heaven. That's why he's pleading with his readers to include you this morning. Don't leave. There's no place else to go.
believers go to heaven, then, then there is yet to come the judgment seat of Christ for believers who will be judged not for their sin. That was taken care of by Christ. Rather, they will be judged for their works and will receive rewards for works done for Christ. Conversely, those who are not saved face immediate fearful judgment. It seems that in the future there is some great white throne judgment when the books are opened and they are judged according to their works, namely their sin, and the book of life will be opened and their name will not be there. point is this. When you die, you face immediate judgment. Namely, have your sins been forgiven by grace through faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection? Listen very carefully. I'm pleading with you. Two of three certain things are your death and then immediate judgment to follow. So again, we've likely all been to funerals. You ever noticed the difference in the funerals of Christians and non-Christians? Non-Christians, there's certainly a hopelessness, indeed a despair at, at their funerals. Why? No hope. Christians, while there is appropriate grief, there is also certain forward hope leading to the last certainty, which is our blessed hope. Verse 27, so Christ also, having been offered once, not many times, once, to bear the sins of many. <laughs> you know how glorious that is? First Peter chapter 2 says that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. This is without a doubt a reference to Isaiah 53. One of my favorite passages. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Does sin matter? Chastening of our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The Lord was pleased to crush him. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. Verse 12, therefore I have allot him a portion of the great, divide the booty with the strong, because he has poured out himself to death, numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself, here it is, bore the sin of many, interceded for the transgressors. I have, I have read that passage dozens of times, and it never grows old. This idea of substitutionary atonement comes through clearly. He bore the sins of many. He bore the sins of his people. And I want you to hear me that same Christ will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. In other words, he's not coming to put away sin the second time. He did that the first time. No, he's coming to appear to those, for those, listen, for those who eagerly await his return. 
Does that bother you? It does me. Because when's the last time you thought about it? It's the third and final certainty. Death is coming. Judgment is coming. And so is Jesus. And so maybe, just maybe, we ought to think about it. It's coming for us. I know it's been 2,000 years. Just like Peter said, unbelievers are saying, come on. Where is the promise of his coming? Come on. All things are the same. Like they've been since the beginning, of, since the Big Bang. There's no God, there's no Christ, there's no first coming, and there's certainly no second. My brothers and sisters, do not let his patience in returning lull you to sleep and cause you to doubt. I want to encourage us, as, as Seth reminded us this morning we live in community and I want to encourage us to to remind each other will you will you remember tomorrow as you go to work or you go to school will you remember death is coming I am suggesting that you think of death more often than you do death is coming so is judgment and so is Jesus. He only delays, Peter says, to allow others to believe. Listen, so the full number of those to believe will have believed. You've maybe heard it this way before. I believe this. There's coming a day when the last person to be saved will be saved, and that's it. His patience simply means salvation. Just like he promised, his return is certain. It is our blessed hope. Paul says it this way, in interesting words. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. In other words, when we think about death and judgment and the coming of Jesus, we might just live differently. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That's how we're supposed to live, looking for that, because we believe it. who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Do you see how this all comes together? He has a people for himself, for his own possession. Do not let his delay discourage you nor cause you to doubt or despair. It is certain Jesus is coming back. Are you ready for certain, inescapable death, judgment, and his return? So, I was thinking as I sat there this morning, and Seth's doing his announcement, 113 days of Christmas. And so as Christmas gets closer, especially for people like, like my wife, she gets more and more excited, right? 113, 112, now I'm going to hear it for the next 113 days. So what is it? that helps us breathe the excitement about his first coming. <laughs> what are you going to get, right? What are you going to give? Okay, maybe you'll be altruistic. Just put up decorations, and you put up trees, and you put up the lights and the tinsel, and gifts start appearing. 
What is it that will encourage us as a community to be excited about the second coming of Christ? What? what? Maybe, just maybe, we ought to talk about it. Maybe we ought to think about it. Maybe we ought to encourage each other. Jesus is coming back. Have you thought about it today? You ever ask anybody that question? Maybe we should.